If you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, the book of First Peter. If you are new to the Bible, if this is if you've never touched one before, the Bible is just like any other book. It has a table of contents. Uh, so if someone looks at you like, why are you looking at the table of contents for First Peter? You let them know. You let them know that they judged you poorly, and uh, Bo and I will then uh, pop them in the uh, face like a rock'em sock'em robot. But turn with me in the book of First Peter, chapter one. And when you get there, you'll see that the large number there is the chapter, and the small numbers are the verse. So we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 21. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, pose a question, if you will. Have any of you ever considered um, what it's like to be a Navy SEAL, or to even train to be a Navy SEAL? You see, to, uh, to be a SEAL is not for the faint of heart. Those who enlist go through a grueling six months training course called BUDS, which stands for uh, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And in fact, the school has a motto that the only easy day was yesterday. And so to be a SEAL is not for the faint of heart. It's grueling six months. So I just want to sh- paint a picture here for a second of just the first, just the first of three phases. And it's the toughest of the phases. It consists of eight weeks of basic conditioning that will test the limits of physical endurance. And at the end of those first eight weeks is a week that denotes great pain and suffering, where two-thirds of the incoming class will call it quits just based off of the the extreme conditions that they're being trained for. Uh, Just a a little bit, the week consists of physical discomfort and pain, uh, miserable wet conditions that will bring some to hypothermia. Uh, For instance, they have to learn how to in case their goggles are misplaced, if they're underwater, they have to learn how to get to their goggles that are now filled with water, put their goggles back on, and then take the water from those goggles, uh, breathe it in, and let it sink into the stomach. Right? Does anyone want to go do that after church uh, this morning? <laughs> but if a young man survives all of that, if they survive the first of the three phases, they will more than likely succeed and graduate in the Navy SEAL course, and they will be the elite of the elite of our military. You see, for many of us, though, we seem, we seem to think that in the Christian life, the purpose of the gospel, the mission of the gospel for us to be holy is only for the elite Christian. And when we think of the elite Christian, we tend to think of just the, the pastors and the missionaries, the worship pastors or the deacons. We tend to think that uh, those are the only ones that know how to handle properly the gospel and only know how to pray, and therefore all the commands of go therefore into all the world, all of those commands, they're just for the elite. This morning I want to set up that we are all called to that elite status. It is not just for a certain few. It is for all believers to be called to be holy exiles. We are all called to be holy exiles. So let's read the text, and then we'll dive right into this morning. So if you will, I'm going to read out loud, and y'all read silently along with me, and stand for with me as we read God's Word together. Peter, writing this to the church, says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you, sh- you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, your word is true, that, Lord, we can believe what you have called us, and that, Lord, you would not call us to be holy as you were holy if you had not also provided a way for us to do that. So, Lord, this morning I pray that, Lord, each and every one of us would be challenged. Lord, just as you have been challenging me this entire week as I've I've studied this passage, that, Lord, you would help us to be holy exiles in this world. Lord, guard our hearts. Lord, I pray also that, Lord, your spirit would have his way in this room and that, Lord, I would decrease that you may increase and that, Lord, you would change us from the inside out to be more and more like your son. We ask for this and pray for this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So before uh, we dive into the text this morning, I do want to uh, define the term exile because Peter uses this term exile throughout the letter. In fact, the entire uh, purpose for the letter is written to the, if you look with me in verse 1, is to those who are elect exiles uh, of the dispersion. And so Peter is using this term exile throughout the book. In fact, chapter 2 will call us sojourners and exiles. And so if Peter is using this term exile, we need to understand what this term means. Because I think for many of us, if I were to poll everyone here, we would all have a different term here. So I want us all to be on the same page here. And so I'm going to do two things and show you what exile is not, and then I'm going to show you what exile is. So the first two are going to be examples of what exile is not, and the first one, or the last one, is what exile is. So immigrant. When we think of the word exile, sometimes we think of the word immigrant, that you were not from here originally, but you have made it your home. For example, Melanie and I moved here uh, back in January from Raleigh. You might think of us as immigrants to South Georgia. Uh, we are learning the culture. We're learning to, um, oh, that word escapes me. Uh, jihad, is that right? Okay. We're learning the colloquial terms. We're learning that fried chicken is king down here. Actually, that's everywhere in the South. I mean, can I get an amen to that fried chicken? <laughs> Some might say that we're immigrants uh, uh, from Raleigh to South Georgia, but there is a deeper meaning with this word immigrant. And it's how many Christians live. They treat this world as if it is their final home. They focus on the politics. They focus on the stock market. They are concerned with leveraging all of their resources and time and effort to make sure that they live a comfortable life here. They want to have their best life now. And I call these Christians the carpe diem Christians. The ones who just seize every joy, every fleeting joy, because they think that it will be their last. And we're not called to be that way. In fact, we're called to a different term. So that's what 
Exile is not. Exile is not the term immigrant. The other term that is mostly associated with exile is tourist. A tourist, a vacationer. If you're a tourist, you are a person who never gets involved. You're only just passing through. You stay with your tour group. You go to Starbucks. You go to McDonald's. You never try any of the other kinds of foods. That video that we showed uh, just a few minutes ago, some of you might not even want to even try that because that just looked a little weird. And so you're just going to stay with your hard shell taco. You are that kind of person. You're a tourist. You're only passing through. And that is an attitude that I've also seen believers take. They stay separated from the world, and they never get involved with the world. And this is the wrong attitude to have as well. So what is the correct term for the word exile? What is the attitude that we should have? And this attitude is that you are not an immigrant seeking citizenship as you realize that your citizenship is in heaven. And you're not a tourist as you engage in the culture around you and leverage your life and your resources for a greater purpose. So for the believer, you are constantly asking, how can I use the resources, the talents, the gifts that God has given me for the sake of the glory of God? That's why you're all the blessings that God has given me. How can I then pour those back out? Paul would say it like this, that I'm a drink offering being poured out for the sake of the gospel. And so how can you, uh, you use your resources in such a way to uh, further the glory of God? You want to pursue Christ with all that you have because you understand that Christ is your joy. You understand that all the fleeting pleasures of sin and all the candy-coated pleasures of the world amount to nothing when you realize that Christ is your full joy, that Christ is everything to you. And so Peter's letter to the first century church is also a challenge and an encouragement to the 21st century, because I'm pretty sure that most of us, and myself included, struggle with this idea of being a holy exile in this life, to actually be in the world but not of the world, to be a missionary for those who are lost and dying in this life. So let's go back to the text, and I just want to bring out three points for the next few moments that we have here this morning. And the first point is this. In verse 13, we see that Peter calls us to prepare our minds for battle, to prepare our minds for battle. Look with me back at the text. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds uh, for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is calling for us to prepare our minds for action. And the simple question is, how do we do that? How do we prepare our minds for action? Well, the Greek that Peter is using here is actually a word picture, which means to gird your loins. Now, you might use the colloquial term jihad, but I doubt many of you are out there saying that you need to gird your loins. If you are, then uh, you probably watch too much of the History Channel. But the gird your loins is this. This is, this is what that means. You see, back in the day, back at the Walmart by the Jordan, they didn't have a lot of graphic tees. They didn't have a lot of Superman t-shirts to be had. All they had were uh, tunics. They had uh, togas, long, long robes. And so to gird your mind is simply put that you would take that uh, tunic, that long robe, wrap it around your waist. And once you did that, a man could uh, walk and run. He could chase after things. He, could, he was warrior-bound, if you will. Nothing could stop him once he girded his loins. Peter is saying the same thing here in this text. He is saying that we are to prepare our minds for battle. He is telling us to prepare our minds for the war that is at hand. Therefore, 
Peter is telling us to gird our minds, to prepare our minds for the battle, and that means spending time in the Word of God. You see, if we're, if we're to gird our loins, it means to take this book seriously. That this book does not just become something that you keep on your night table and it collects dust and you only pull it out on Sunday morning. It means that you pour into it. You allow this word to change your life. You uh, love it. You want it to read it, memorize it, have it in your hearts. And make this book your life. You see, the Bible, the word of God, is the lifeblood of the believer. And we need to realize that, church. We need to realize that we are at war. And the only way to gird our minds to, for the action ahead of us is to let this word soak into our lives. You've heard of the old adage, I'm sure, garbage in, garbage out, right? What you, whatever you ingest is what you're going to be talking about. That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is the overflow of your heart like right now? Let me just step back for a second and just be a pastor here. Let me just ask, this past week, how many of you spent 10 minutes in the Word of God? How many of y'all spent five minutes? How many did you just consider God at some point during your day? Now, please don't, I'm not trying to get on anyone's toes here because I'm trying to step on my toes just as much. I work just a few feet away. I have an office, and yet it is a difficult aspect in my life to not to not just read the Word, to study the Word, but to let the Word become part of me. You see, for the believer, to gird our minds for the action, to prepare our hearts so that we not sin against God, it means that we make this Word our very life. And we strive for it. And we ask the Lord to change our hearts from the inside out to be more and more like His Son. So please don't say today that Dave's stepping on your toes. I'm stepping on my toes as well. But we need to prepare our minds for the action and the battle that is ahead. Peter continues also in verse 13 and says that we are to be sober-minded. We are to be sober-minded. So what does that word sober mean? The dictionary definition states that one who is sober-minded is not affected by alcohol, not drunk, Uh, But they are serious, they're sensible, they're solemn. In essence, to be in control of one's body. For the believer, you see, this is key. We need to remember that we are at war with the inner man. That inner man right there is the sin nature in all of us. That idea that we're going to choose whatever we want to do. That we're going to choose sin over Christ. And so Peter says that we need to uh, be sober-minded because of the war that we have with our inner man. Paul says it like this in Romans 7. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, in that section of Romans 7, Paul wants badly to be sober-minded. He does not want to be drunk on sin. For he realizes that when he lets his guard down, he will forego the grace of Christ that he delights in and will instead chase after the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is key, church. You see, not only are we called to gird our minds, to uh, wrap our tunic around our loins and be ready for action, but we're also called to be sober-minded, not to be drunk on sin. And for some of you this morning, y'all need to hear the blitzkrieg that that brings to your life. 
Because sin is constantly just calling to you, asking, come to me. Come and see that I am far greater than Christ. Come and see that I have greater pleasures than, than, than the Bible. Come and see that I will satisfy your every need. And every time that we go to sin, every time that we think that sin is going to satisfy us, every time that we think that this is what's going to make our life whole, sin does not. Sin leaves us wanting more and more and more. And it leads us down a path that we don't want to go. And in contrary to that, in contrast, Christ shows us that he is far greater. That he is the well that never runs dry. That he is the love of our life. That he is the joy that's going to satisfy our needs and our wants and our desires. That Christ is our life. And we need to not be drunk on sin. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5.11. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk on sin, but be filled in the gospel. Like that song we just sang a few moments ago, stand up for Jesus, put on the armor of God, put on the gospel armor in prayer. Do not be drunk on sin, but put on the gospel. Put on the love of Christ that he has for you. We're going through a study right now with the students on Sunday morning uh, called uh, This Changes Everything. It's just a practical example of what it looks like for sin. You guys ever seen the fly traps out there, right? The little, the little buzz, the little blue light. You ever think a fly wants to go to that light and, and think that that light is going to change their world in a great way? No, that fly just goes right to the light because it knows, it knows nothing better to do. That's like us with sin. We see it. It looks great. It looks gleaning. It looks glorious. It looks all that we want. And then when we get to it, what happens? We're buzzed. That's what happens with sin in our lives. And that's why Paul is saying, or excuse me, what Peter is saying here is that we're to gird our minds for the action, for the war that, we're, that is before us. And then also in that same action, as we gird our loins, we're to be sober-minded. We're not to... We're not to think of sin. We're not to allow sin to entice us, but rather look at Christ and see that he is more glorious. And so not only does Peter call us to prepare our minds for action, for we are holy exiles in this life, but we are also called to holiness. We're also called to holiness, and so we're to strive in holiness. Look back with me at the text in verses 15 uh, through 16. And it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, meaning don't be conformed to your sin life, don't be conformed to your sin nature. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I can't think of a greater commandment within the Bible that I've struggled with more in my, in my life. I can remember when I first heard that as a teenager who came to Christ, and Peter says here, to be holy as I am holy, how do you do that? Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if you've read that, you've struggled with this, okay, be holy as I am holy, but how do you do that? It it almost seems impossible because of the fact that I know who I am. I know that I have sin. I know that I am not perfect. So how do I be holy as he is holy? So I'm hoping in the next few moments that uh, to break down this term, uh, be holy as I am holy with you guys. So let's look at what does holy mean. The key word to remember with holiness is that it means separated. The key word with holiness is to remember that it means separated. Both the Greek word 
Hagios in the Hebrew word kadosh mean to be separated or to be set apart. When God told, told the Israelites that he was holy, he meant that he was different from them, separated, unique, one of a kind. Exodus 15.11 states that there is none holy like the Lord. You see, God is different. He's set apart from sinful humanity because his holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. His perfection cannot be in the presence of imperfection. And so when you walk through uh, the Old Testament, you see that this holy God who is separated from all of creation. In fact, you will see that the Israelites would constantly get into trouble when they forgot this otherness, this holiness of God. You see, the Israelites would always get in trouble when they would uh, forget this holiness of God. And they would go back to their own ways. Look at the book of Judges. And you will see that they constantly saw what was right in their own eyes. And that led into sin. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts greater than your thoughts. So holiness means separated. And because God in his purity is separated from all that is impure, the Jewish people had ceremonial laws uh, and rituals to keep them from entering into God's presence in an unworthy manner. Why? Why did they do this? Why did they have the Holy of Holies separated and, and the chief priests could only walk in in the correct way? It's because God is absolute purity. God is absolute in his purity. There is no defilement in God. He is pure, holy, perfect, and we are not. Where he is blameless, we are filled with blame. Where he is perfect, we are far from perfect. We are greater than whatever, whatever imperfect is. And so here we have this idea of holiness, this idea that we are separated from God. And the Bible's story doesn't end there, though. You see, an interesting thing happens when, in the New Testament, a new character enters the scene, and it's called Jesus Christ. Both fully God and both fully man, this changes a little bit about this holiness. Because once we've, in the Old Testament, if we were to come before a holy God in our imperfection and his perfection, we would be obliterated. We would be like that little uh, fly going into the uh, light. We would have no hope. And yet an interesting thing happens when Jesus enters the picture. Remember, holiness means separated from all impurity, and yet an interesting, interesting thing happens in God's pursuit of us. When Jesus, who is both fully God and both fully man, holy, pure, blameless, came to earth, his holiness did not destroy us, but rather it healed us. His holiness did not destroy us, but rather it healed us. If you want a word picture of, uh, of what that looks like, earlier this week, my wife was sick. Some of you guys may have seen her photo on, on Facebook of all these little uh, Theraflus and every Sudafeds and everything like that. I mean, uh, you would have thought that she had like contracted like the flu times 10. I don't know. But as I was watching her cough and I was watching, you know, hearing her gravelly voice, you know how someone who has a sore throat, they talk like this, you know. They sound like they've, you know, smoked cigarettes for like 50 years. And I thought about it for a second. I went, you know, my wellness is not going to cure her. The fact that I am uh, healthy right now is not going to somehow make her better. Rather, the opposite is going to happen. Her uncleanliness, her illness was going to probably make me sick. 
Isn't that usually what happens when, that, when a family member gets sick, right? You're like, oh, stay away from me, stay away from me. I don't want to get what you get. And then three days later, what, I come into the office on Friday, I, I sound like this. I was like Batman. And both say, hey, mate, that, that might really sound good on Sunday if you sound like Batman. <laughs> but luckily, that, don't, that didn't stay with me too long. I still have just a little bit of congestion. But my wellness did not make her better. But with Jesus, it does. You see, Jesus in his holiness, he was not only perfect in his holiness, but also in his love and power. And so that when he came and he touched the leper, what happened? The spots were gone. When he touched the blind man's eyes, what happened? He could see. When he, could, when he touched the one who could not hear, they could hear. And when he touched uh, the dead, what happened? They came back to life. See, Jesus in his holiness, in his love and his purity, it healed us. It made us new. And so when we read the stories in the Gospels, we need to consider that we are like those people, unclean and sick, and Jesus, who is beautiful, pure, touches us and makes us clean. How can this be? The Gospel. You see, the Gospel is simply put that Jesus died in our place, that we traded places, the great exchange, that he took our sinfulness and we got his record of perfection, that he got our condemnation while we stand not condemned. One of the most glorious verses in the New Testament is found in Romans 8.1 and is the cornerstone of our faith that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That what he did at the cross was supernatural and there's nothing that we can do to make us lovely, nothing that we can do to make us clean. Rather, it is only an act of faith in what he did for us at the cross. I've been going through a study on Sunday nights uh, through the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians uh, outlines this perfectly. In fact, the students rejoiced uh, Wednesday night because we finished that study. We've been it since January. But Galatians constantly shows us, and what Peter is showing us here is that there's nothing in us that can make us holy. There's nothing in us that can make us pure. There's nothing in us that can make us blameless but rather is only Christ at the cross and what he did and responding in faith to that glorious message of hope that changes the man, that changes the woman, that takes away the shame and the guilt, the things that we don't want anyone else to see, the skeletons in our closet that we want no one to know about, the shame and guilt that you are harboring right now because you feel as if you are not able to be loved by God. Christ in his holiness and his love and his purity says, no, you are loved by me. You are made new by what I can do at the cross. So just as a point of application real quick, are you holding on to the sin of your life? Are you holding on to the shame and guilt, feeling that you need to somehow make yourself lovely before God? Somehow you need to make yourself pretty before Him? Are you trusting in the grace of Christ to make you clean, to make you new? So how, going back to the text... If the gospel is what cleanses us, if the gospel is what saves us, how then do we be holy? Because that command is still there. You shall be holy, for I am holy. We need to remember what Paul writes in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I now live, I live in pursuit of the one who saved me. Therefore, just as righteousness, standing blameless before God as a gift, so too is holiness. Church, did you catch that? 
just as righteousness, the fact that we are now guiltless, that we are not guilty in our sin, but rather we're redeemed, we're made new, so too is holiness. Holiness is a gift from God. Just as grace is a gift, so too is holiness. Holiness is given to us as a gift purchased by Christ at the cross. Holiness is not a standard to be reached. It is a reality to be lived in now. Holiness is not a standard somehow that I need to somehow reach it. I need to attain it. That I need to climb Mount Everest that is holiness. But rather, it is a reality to be lived in now. That I live now in holiness. That I live now in pursuit of Christ. So what does that mean then? It means, simply put, to be wholly devoted to God. It means to be wholly devoted to God. If you're wondering how to be wholly devoted to God, consider how he was wholly devoted to you. How he took on your sin, how he took your cross, how he took your shame, how he took your guilt. As he has been to you, so you live for Christ. As he has been wholly devoted to you, you be wholly devoted to him. Excuse me. The position of holiness uh, that Christ gives us becomes the power for holiness at work inside of us. As we love God more and more, we drink from the bottomless ocean of his love, so we pour out our lives for him. So how do we live out this verse, you shall be holy as I am holy? If you're a believer in this room today, if you claim Christ, now I'm just going to put it in a very easy term, you shall be holy as I am holy simply means this, do the next right thing. If you know Christ, and if you know how you're to live as a believer, if you know how you are to act and behave, then do the next right thing. So simply put, when sin comes knocking at your door, when the temptation is to look at the computer, when the temptation is to look at the movie you shouldn't be looking at, when the temptation comes to, not, to gossip about someone or to, be, uh, to maybe roll your eyes at your parents, even you who are 60 in this room, don't do that. Rather, live in the command that Christ has made you new. So be holy as he is holy. As Christ has been to you, remember what he's did for you, and then you live for him. A beautiful illustration of this is found uh, from a story in the Civil War. I don't know if this is true or not. I I haven't vetted this at all. But the story goes that uh, there was a man who came from up north. And uh, this man, he was a rich man. And he saw slave trading going on. And he saw what was happening to a young lady. And he watched for a second and he said, you know what? I need to act. And so he stood up. And he named a price for that young lady. It was a price that no one else could bid on. And so he won her. And the young lady came over to him. And, with, and he says to her, you're free. I have purchased your freedom. You are not a slave. You are free. And in her amazement of that, she says, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? And the man says, Yes. And then to say whatever I want, she asks. He says, yes, you can say whatever you want. And then she asks, to be whatever I want to be? I can be whatever I want? She said, and he says, yes. You can be whatever you want. Whatever your heart's desire is. What, if you want to be an actress, be an actress. If you want to be a journalist, be a journalist. You are free to do whatever it is that you want. And then she asks this, and to go wherever I want? He says, Yes. You can go wherever you want. He says, you're free. And then she says, she looked right at him in intent 
and says, then I will go wherever you go. Wherever you go, I will be. Wherever, whatever you do, I will do. And I will live my life in pursuit of everything that you have done here to, to ransom me from the slavery. The command to be holy as he is holy is to recall to mind all that Christ has done to make us free, all that Christ has done to redeem us, all that Christ has done to save us from our sins, shame, and guilt. And in response to that, we live lives for Christ. We live lives in holy obedience to him. Not perfect, right? Because I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with my sin nature still. Even with walking with the Lord since I was eight years old, I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with thoughts. But I know that I am redeemed. I remind myself of my identity in Christ. And I say that I am redeemed. I am restored. I am made new. I am not condemned. But rather, I am made new as a child of God. And so in response to the one who saved me, be holy as he is holy. Peter finishes up here in verse 21. And he says, Who through him are believers in God, meaning us, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God. The command to be holy as he is holy is not, does not rest on your ability to be holy, but rather it rests on the ability of the one who saved you. Look with me back at verse 21. Does it say that so that your faith and hope are in you? So that your faith and hope are in the church that you go to? So that your faith and hope are in the parents who have brought you to church every Sunday? Where does your faith and hope rest in, church? Your faith and hope rest in God. So as we close this morning, do you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Or do you trust in your own abilities to make yourself holy? Are you the pull-yourself-up-from-the-bootstrap kind of Christian, thinking that in some way you need to make yourself lovely before God because of the fact that you feel as if you need to do that? Or do you trust solely in what Christ did for you at the cross, the free gift of salvation that also comes with redemption, but also comes with a gift of holiness? Do you cling to the precious blood of Christ that was spilled out for you, or do you mock it by continuing to pursue fleeting pleasures of sin? Where are you today? We're going to close in prayer, and there will be a time of invitation, and Bo will be down here up front. Or you can do business with God right there at the pew. But I would just ask that you consider, where are you resting on your, are you resting on your own uh, abilities for salvation? Are you resting on your own ability to be holy? Are you resting on the one who called you to be holy? And resting that if he is the one who redeemed you in sin, from your sin, that he too will also make you holy, just as he is holy. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you have called in imperfect people to share a perfect message of grace. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, for right now in this room, Lord, I know that your spirit is, is working inside hearts. Lord, I pray and ask that, Lord, uh, they would not hearts would not feel condemned or feel uh, guilty, but rather they would feel, remember, that they are being redeemed by you. Lord, I pray that in this call to be holy, that, Lord, you would help us to be holy. And in that pursuit of holiness, we would remember what you did for us at the cross, and then we would live in pursuit of all that you've done for us. 
Lord, we ask for this and pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.